Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Our study of the book of Daniel is continuing, and today we start looking at chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. In this chapter, we find lions about. And what happens to Daniel as he is thrown into the lion's den? These first 10 verses of this chapter shows the ways of jealousy and murderous thinking of the leaders of the country. Class teacher Doug Brady will carefully and completely explain how this is working out, and next week we'll see the lion's den itself. The Believer's Bible class is part of the historic First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We invite you to join us if you are ever in the Dallas area. Well, Doug is at the podium, ready to begin the lesson, so turn in your Bible to the sixth chapter of Daniel. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. I've got a question I want to ask. It's a difficult question. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. It's based, though, on something we've talked about several times. If you're, we're starting our study in Daniel chapter 6 today. If we wanted to find out about the themes and the principles going to be taught in Daniel chapter 6, what other chapter of the book would we look into or consider? What number? Give me a number. Nope. Wrong. Remember, we have a chiasm here. And the one, chapter 3, exactly right. Gee, Neil, she's not only very, very pretty, she's pretty darn smart too. You've got yourself a winner there. The fact is that two, chapter two, doesn't match up with chapter five. Chapter two matches, uh, I mean six, it matches up with chapter seven. What does chapter two talk about? Prophecy, right? Times of the Gentiles, as seen from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view. When we get into chapter seven, we're going to see prophecy two from God's point of view and compare it to chapter two. But today, we have chapter 3 as the precursor to what's said in chapter 6 and this chiastic way of approaching things. So that's the, be the chapter that we would want to look at. Now, we just finished chapter 5. It was the story of what king? Belshazzar. Belshazzar. There was two things I wanted to mention about that chapter that we looked at. Number one, sin is never static. Sin always leads us downward. If you look at it from this point of view, if you have decay in one of your teeth, is it going to remain static? No, it's going to spread if you let it. If you have rot on a piece of cheese, if you don't cut it out, what's going to happen? It's going to spread over the whole block. Sin is just like that. Sin, now, 
I said cut it out. Julie would say throw the whole block away. But the fact is, that doesn't match the principle. The principle is sin spreads. Sin is never static. If you look in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, you'll see that. Now, it's interesting. The chapters that we have studied, 1 through 6 of the book of Daniel, contain three of the most well-known stories in the Bible. Three of the most well-known, even people who aren't believers, who really don't know the Bible. They know the story about the lion's den. They know the story about the handwriting on the wall. They know the story about being thrown in a fiery furnace. Those are well-known stories. Now, I'm sure with the education that the children of our nation are getting now, they're not very well-known to anybody, but then again, they never heard of uh, Christopher Columbus's prophecies. They've never heard of the Mayflower Compact. They've never heard of those other documents like that. They have no idea what the founding documents of Harvard uh, say. But be that as it may, we need to look at this fellow, Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede was given control of the kingdom of Babylon. The, not just the city, but the kingdom. You remember, Babylon started out as a kingdom and then it grew into an empire. Its empire included the Mede, Median territory, the Persian territory, down in towards Egypt. Of course, uh, all of the uh, promised land was included in their empire. So now Babylon has been defeated and Cyrus has given Gubaru or Darius, and, and that's, I think, Darius is the lead general of Cyrus's army. And one of the reasons I think that is, for this reason, if we look at Daniel, and I studied chapter 6 this week, it appears to me that the king would, not, would like not to have to rule. He would like to get in a position of uh, subordinates who can do all the work, have commissioners who oversee everything, and that way he doesn't have to run the kingdom. He can let somebody who's really good at it because he doesn't like doing that. He likes battles and warfare and strategy and those kinds of things. And so we need to see how this is going to work out. Now, I want you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. But before we read this passage, let's pray. Father, as we open your book, I pray that you will teach us today. Help us to see what it is that you have preserved for us. Help us to understand what you want us to see. May the knowledge we acquire today, Father, not just be in our head, but I pray you put it down into our heart and make it a part of us, a part that we can take with us. Help us to understand the principles here that are so important, the things we can learn from this man's life, the things that we need to transfer from Daniel's life to ours. Pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, it starts out this way. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. Now, let's stop there just a second. This word satraps in the Hebrew is a word that kind of means governor, governor of a Persian province. So you have this kingdom of Babylon 
that was divided into 120 provinces. And each province had a satrap over it. Now, some of you who way back, you think satrap, is that anything to do with man from uncle? No, not in this context, it doesn't. I want you to understand, it came from this Persian word first, and that television series borrowed it from here. Now, 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and the king might not suffer loss. In other words, in these countries at this time, in these kingdoms, there was a lot of skimming going on. And this idea was set up to prevent skimming. You got to remember that Darius was accountable to Cyrus. And so he wanted to make sure all the taxes collected made it to the royal treasury and not into the treasury of these satraps. On the other hand, these satraps were basically Democrats. <laughs> and they believed that when you get in the position of power, that is when you make money. And so that was what they were about. Well, yes, that too. But the fact is that if you let someone who was honest be in control, well, then you got a serious problem. So you can't allow that to happen. So this word commissioners that they use is the Aramaic word sarak, and sarak means a chief or an overseer. So you have 120 governors, and over them you have three commissioners who are chiefs or over them, who are over them and, and taking care of seeing everything is being done properly. Now notice also that God preserved Daniel through this Persian invasion and elevated him to extremely high position. The decision was made, here's this king, we don't want him around, we'll kill him. But the third in command, this guy Daniel, uh, he seems to have a good track record, we'll utilize him. And they do. And in fact, Darius is very happy that he's come across Daniel. He's happy in the same way that Potiphar was happy. He's happy in the same way that Pharaoh was happy with Joseph. So Daniel is now a part. Now, who did that? God did that. Why does he want to use Daniel in Darius's life? Does he want to use Daniel in Cyrus's life? Absolutely he does. And you're going to see, you've got these, we're going to call them skimmers. I'm not going to use political parties anymore, I apologize. But we, we're going to use these skimmers. There's 120 of them plus two. We're going to have to figure out what we can do about those. How is Daniel going to control those? Does God have a plan to deal with these? Well, you won't get the answer to that question this week, but you will next week, because God does have a plan. Now, look at verse 3. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. The king, just like Pharaoh, what did Pharaoh do? He said, why don't we just let Joseph run the kingdom? He seems to be so wise. Why don't we just let Daniel run the kingdom? He seems to be so brilliant. And he both were right. But I want you to look. There's some poor translations in my Bible, I think. The first one is this word distinguishing. 
It means to excel. And uh, distinguishing seems a little weak to me in this. Uh, you know, you tend to think of someone who's distinguished. Well, no, that, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about excelling. This is a merit-based word. Uh, you know, who's doing well and better than everybody else? Did we not see that in chapter 2? Pardon me. Did we not see that in chapter 1? When he was better than any of the other uh, wise men or magi who were there. Any of the other Chaldeans, conjurers, what have you. Now, in the same way, he's better than all these other administrators. And the king sees he's excelling when they are not, but he is. Number two, this word extraordinary spirit. What does this word extraordinary mean? Well, to me, of the possible choices, extraordinary seems to me to be the weakest. This is the word uh, yatiar, and yatiar uh, has this meaning of preeminent, surpassing, or extreme. Now, what is it talking about that's preeminent, passing, or supreme? The spirit that is inside of Daniel. Now, there's been some critics of this particular verse who say, Maybe it's true that he has this extraordinary spirit inside of him, but unbelievers couldn't recognize that. They wouldn't know. Uh, how is it that it's saying the king would see, I mean, uh, Darius would see this, the king? What they saying, right? Do we have any other examples in scriptures of where unbelievers recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit in a godly man or woman? How about Potiphar? Would Potiphar be one? Did not he see? Well, let's just look. Look at what uh, it says in Genesis 39, starting in verse 2. And the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him. And how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper by his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house. And all that he owned, he put in his charge. Potiphar saw that in Joseph. Now you give Pharaoh an even smaller window in which to look. But look what he said uh, in verse 38 of chapter 41. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? He's recognizing in him the spirit of God. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one more discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. According to your command, all my people should do homage. Only in the throne am I greater than you. Yes. He's holy instead of hard. He is. And that's what distinguishes. But he's seeing that spirit of holiness in him. And he set apart himself for that. Daniel's the same way. Now, so we look at these two men, Joseph and Daniel... And we see this uh, extreme or overwhelming spirit in their hearts that even these unbelievers can see. Is that possible for us? Well, you know, John speaks of that in one of his first epistle where he says, And you are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, it's interesting, as John says, because he takes it another step. Is he talking about the Holy Spirit in the believer? Yes. But he's also talking about someone else in the world. Say, greater is, you know, some people want to say, 
there's two adversaries, God and Satan, you know, and they're both uh, on the same level going after each other. No, they're not on the same level. Satan is a created being. God is God. He did the creating. He always was, and he always will be. So let's go on to verse 6. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. Well, they say, we got to get rid of this guy. He's going to ruin us. We're going to have an honest government if we can't get rid of him. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. And no negligence or corruption was found in him. Now, let's look at two words to, to see what they're trying to say. The first one is corruption. The second one is negligence. They didn't find that in him. What does that speak of? Corruption speaks of intentional acts. That is where you have planned to do something wrong, to take something that's not yours, uh, to misapply or misappropriate, while negligence is the result of carelessness or bad judgment. Not that you're intending to do something bad, but that you were just careless or you exercised bad judgment, and this happened. You know, it seemed like that phrase, bad judgment, was spoken to me an awful lot as I was growing up by my father. <laughs> Douglas, that was very bad judgment. Unfortunately, sometimes he was wrong because it wasn't bad judgment, it was intentional. But be that as it may, I understand that term very well. So as a result, as some of us have experienced, Daniel has made enemies at work by doing a really good job. He's made enemies at work by doing a really good job. You see, the world is always jealous when God honors a believer and they're bigots. What's the, what's the prejudice here? Well, he's Jewish. He's a Jew. We're Persians. What are we doing letting a Jew be in charge? And, and I think the word leaked out of what he's planning to do. We can't allow that to happen. He'd be in charge of everything. Get rid of the Jew. That's the concept. When they speak about Daniel to Darius, listen, do they call him Daniel the commissioner or Daniel that Jewish guy who Babylon brought in was an exile. Let's see which way they talk about him when we get there. And so they knew that Daniel would make sure their prior government revenue stream would be diverted back to where it belonged. And so we come to verse 5. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. And then... These commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius lived forever. All of the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefix and the satraps. Now, they've thrown in another term here, prefix. They would be under the satraps. The prefix and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. And then King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. Now, here again, I don't intend to be political at all, 
But it seems to me as if they bring this document and they said, you should be a God, at least treat it as a God. For, so don't read this, just sign it. You know, don't read it until after you vote for it. But the idea here is, I, some of you caught that. I'm glad to hear that. You're up on those kind of things. Now, notice, they concluded the only way to get rid of Daniel was to get him by the priority which he gave his heavenly master. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people could say that about us? Well, the only weakness Steve has is that, you know, that God he worships. So we got to figure a way to get him that way because no other way would work. Wouldn't that be awesome if they could say that about us? Now, the other thing I want you to see, it was easy for them to devise a plan to get Darius. Pride. Do you see that? They stroked his ego. But now, something else. Notice this. This is a lie. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefix and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction. Is that true? How do you know that's not true? Because Daniel wasn't one of them. Exactly, you see? They're lying to the king. I would, if they were asking for my advice as their lawyer, now they did a pretty good, let's say, I'm going to say big firm lawyer job here. But I would have said, if you lie to a king who can throw you in a lion's den, I would suggest you be very careful about doing that. That's probably not the wisest thing to do, to lie to him. All right. So as you're looking at this, I want you to notice something. What do they stress about the law of the Medes and the Persians? Can revoke it. Can you revoke a Babylonian law? Yeah. Whatever the king says goes. That's not true in the Medes and the Persians. If the king makes the law. He can't say, oh, what? I changed my mind. We're not doing that anymore. It's good. Yes. Uh, along that line, I taught this, this uh, history to students one year, this particular period of history, and in uh, Babylon and early counties and several other cities, in the middle of the city would be a giant obelisk with all the laws of the land written on it. However, the richer you were, the fewer of those laws you had to obey. It just sounds comforting. That does sound like something I'm used to. Not that I'm the one that doesn't have to obey, but uh, knowing some people don't. But anyway, I want you to see this. Why would it be like that? Well, let me tell you how it developed. The idea developed in the mind of the Medes and the Persians, especially the Persians, that if you could revoke a law, that means it was improvidently created in the first place. And their kings don't create any improvident law. So that's the reason that they came up with this. That's, that's the etymology of this or the history of, of that concept. So, and in fact, if you look in Esther 8.8, 8, you'll find the same concept of it's unre- irrevocable. Now, let's go to verse 10, because verse 10 to me seems to be key. This is something we really need to look at carefully. We need to walk around it, uh, so to speak. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God 
as he had been doing previously. Now, the test is now put to Daniel. Compromise for 30 days, your public display of allegiance to God, or face death. What are you going to do? Sometimes I have found that I can come to understand something better in the Scripture if I put my, pretend like I'm the lawyer for that guy, whoever's making the decision. And so let's just assume for a second, I thought this week, that I'm Daniel's lawyer. And he asked me, what's your advice, Mr. Brady? How do you think I should respond to this law? What can we do? Well, I would say, Daniel, as you know, it's irrevocable. And the punishment is, or, or the sanction is capital punishment. Now, it says that you can't pray to anybody else but Darius. But Daniel, what if you just closed the window? They can't see you. You can pray whoever you want. Just close the windows. And how would Daniel respond? He would respond, Mr. Brady, what you're suggesting I do is to compromise. You see, the things I say and the actions I take are with unashamed boldness when it comes to the laws and the provisions of my God. And then you begin to see what's going on. He could have just closed those windows and maybe prayed in his heart instead of out loud. In Daniel's mind would have been a compromise. You say, well, they'll never see that compromise. And his response would be, I would and my God would. And I'm not going to do that. And he would say, Mr. Brady, if I do that, you know what I'm forfeiting? My unearthly protection. I don't want to do that. I don't want to have, I want to have an unblemished faith. I don't want any stains on my faith. In fact, you remember the characteristics we have of, of uncompromising life. He closes those shades. He's not acting with unashamed boldness. He wouldn't be confident in unearthly protection. He would have difficulty carrying on with unhindered persistence because he's not carrying on what he's doing before. He's changing. He had adopted an uncommon standard three times a day. Now, he's a busy commissioner over the kingdom of Babylon, but three times a day, he's stopping down, going to his house, and praying from that upper chamber. And you see these other things. He wasn't unprepared for testing. He knows it's coming. When did, when did this event start in chapter 10? When he knew the document had been signed. That's when it started. That's when the decisions were made. Now, I want you to look. How do you make a decision like this? How do you make a decision like this? Because I am convinced. You know, after hearing a guy yesterday at Lamb and Lion who came over here from the UK, and he explained to us what's going on over in Europe and how horrible it is over there. He showed a picture of his backyard. And a nice looking backyard. But then you see over on the left, outside his fence, a pole with about six different cameras on it, many of which trained. He said, there's no freedom in England. Everybody and the government knows everything you're doing. And you think about that. If you own a home and they have cameras out the front and back of your yard, how would you feel about that? I know, Bob, you couldn't take your shotgun out there and maybe you could invest in a mound of termites to put in the 
but anyway, you can see how my mind works, I'm afraid. I'm sorry about that. But you got to make a decision, and you need to know what to do. And you're going to have to make a decision. You know, there's bakers in our country who had to make decisions, and they lost their business. And florists in our country have had to make decisions. Do you know that when they decided on this question of whether a florist who said, you can go to these other florists, here's their names and numbers, they'll do this for you. And they said, no, you're going to have to do it for you. It went all the way up to start with to the Washington Supreme Court. Nine jurists on the Washington Supreme Court. You know what the decision was made? You know how many were for and how many were against? It was a nine to nothing decision, all in favor of perversion. It's amazing what's going on in our country. You know, California has talked about seceding. Why couldn't we include Oregon and Wharton now? So, what do you do? Number one, the number one thing you do, weigh out and carefully consider the options in front of you. What are my options? What were Dan Daniel's options? He said, I can keep doing exactly what I'm doing. I could keep praying but close the windows. I could keep praying but make sure I don't pray out loud and close the windows. Or I can pray to Darius for 30 days. Or maybe I could pray to Darius for the first five days. I could keep the windows open and speak loudly enough that they hear that I'm praying to Darius. All these different possibilities. So that's the first thing you do. Then you determine which of those choices will cause you to compromise divine principles set out in the scripture. Which one will cause a compromise? And of all those ones I mentioned, there's only one that doesn't. Gary? I have a question about the baker. Say again? I have a question about the baker. Yeah, in, Cal in Colorado. Why can't, why can't we use the precedent that they used, that the Supreme Court used, against the baker? Why can't they use that against Facebook? That's a really good question. But here's maybe the better thing. When he got to the Supreme Court of the United States, they ruled in his favor. Thank goodness. And, yep. But, you know, the problem is Supreme Court maybe takes 3 to 4% of the cases in which they're petitioned to hear. I mean, that's just normal. Texas Supreme Court only takes 9 to 11%. So, well, we don't need to get into jurisprudence. Now, so you determine which choices will cause you to compromise. Then, if you have it available, you seek wise, godly counsel if possible. Now, with Daniel, I don't know if he had, it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were still alive or not. I don't know. I don't know if Ezekiel was there and he had access to him or not. I don't know. Daniel's about 83 here. But you seek counsel if you can. The fourth thing you do is you consider the cost. Why? Because God wants you to know the cost before you make the decision. Daniel understood clearly that if he violated this injunction, he was going to be thrown in the lion's den. He understood that. There's no question in his mind. And once you make your decision based on the admonitions of Scripture, number five, number six, you act swiftly and resolutely. And that's what Daniel did. And that's what you're going to see. Daniel knew that God never honors compromise on spiritual truth, nor does God want his children to even have the appearance of compromise. Now, I think there's something else here in this verse 10 that we shouldn't miss. Because there's evidence here of Daniel's life, in Daniel's life, of ten guidelines of, of a godly prayer that we need to see. 
Some people say, you know, we need to pray before we get to the work because praying is important before you get to the work. I would disagree with that. Praying is the work. We don't consider it like that. Daniel would consider praying the work. You have access to petition Almighty God. When does he allow you to come to him? Whenever you want. Let's look at these 10 principles. Number one, for a godly prayer, it's not the last thing that you do. It's the first. What did it say? When Daniel heard the document was signed, he went into his upper room and started praying. As soon as he learned. That's the first thing. Number two, or or, or not number two, I want you to see this here. You give prayer a priority. As soon as he knew that document was signed, when decisions need to be made, go to God first. Don't go to God last. Go to God first and see what he directs you to do. Now, what if he doesn't immediately respond? You'll keep praying. You know, it's interesting I had a, a wonderful relationship with a former pastor of ours by the name of Mac Brunson. And Mac Brunson was an extremely godly man. And I said to him one day, we were talking, and I said, Mac, you know, when I'm teaching, sometimes I come into a verse that I'm having a hard time understanding or there's something in there that I can't seem to figure out. And I go to commentaries uh, and, and look at them, and I can't find the answer. I've got maybe 30 study Bibles, and I go through each one looking for the answer there, and I can't find it. What do you do? Do you ever get in that situation? He said, yeah. So, well, what do you do? He said, you really want to know? And I said, yeah. He says, I take my Bible. I open up to that passage. I lay it down on the floor. I get down on my knees. I stick my face in the Bible and say, God, I'm praying till you give me the answer. Does he? He says, invariably, he does. Sometimes it takes longer than others. Now, that's Serious, isn't it? I'm not getting up till I get the answer. Decisions need to be made. You go to God first. So prayer is a priority, number one. Number two, prayer should be the result of a commitment to obedience. God tells us to pray about everything. But was Daniel really being obedient? I mean, yeah, he went and he prayed three times a day, but that's just what Daniel wanted to do, right? That's not being obedient necessarily. Oh, let's look what David said in Psalm 55, starting verse 6. As for me, I shall call upon God, and Yahweh will save me evening, morning, and at noon. I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. What did David say? If you want God to hear your voice, morning, noon, and night. Wow. He really says that? Daniel was being obedient. Now, let me... Let's talk about that again. Vera, when he went into that upper chamber and he left his windows open, what direction was he looking at when he looked out those windows? Do you remember? Where? Towards Jerusalem. And what particular thing in Jerusalem? The temple. Well, yeah, he wanted to do that, but that's not really obedience, is it? Oh, let's look. Would you suggest First Kings? Chapter 8, let's start. I found three passages. First, in verse 28 through 30, yet have regard. Now, this is Solomon speaking when he has built the temple. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant 
and to his supplication, O Yahweh, my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be opened towards this house, that is the temple, night and day, towards the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. That's in verse 30. Look down in verse 39. Then hear in your heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render each according to all his ways whose hearts you know. When they sin against you and you are angry, deliver them from the enemy and take them out. If they take thought in hand where they have been captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those whom taken them captive and have sinned and committed iniquity, we have acted differently. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken you captive, pray to you toward your land or their land which you have given their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built in your name. What is he saying? When they take you captive, they take you to another land, pray towards Israel, pray towards Jerusalem, pray towards the temple, and God will hear. Daniel's being obedient in his prayers. And that's something we need to see because that's important. Number three, prayer should be an expression of faith. Trust and reliance on the Most High God. Now, someone could say, wait a second. Daniel's not really being obedient here in praying towards Jerusalem and the temple. There is no Jerusalem right now. It's destroyed. The temple, it's been flattened. Oh, but what is Daniel doing by praying towards that place? He says, I believe God will restore Jerusalem and he will allow us to rebuild the temple. I trust in him in that. And is the prophecy in chapter 9 that we'll come to say exactly that? Yes, it does. Daniel's praying. This is an expression of faith, not only obedience, but faith that, yes, that will happen. He knew what lay ahead, and he wanted the outcome to race firmly in the hands of God. Yes. Question. Is this event after the, uh, the chapter 7? No. Now, that's a good question. No, he was not at that prophecy is in nine. Okay. He would not have had that prophecy. Okay. That's my opinion on the fly. So, if I'm wrong, I will tell you next week. That is something that is instructed to God's people. Not anymore. Because the next temple that's going to be built is not a temple we want to be praying towards. It's going to be the Antichrist's <laughs> temple. Yes. So the term that's used when flying I think it's more I easily understand it or I understand it better in obedience and faith and those two work together you know trust and obey there's no other way uh, you've sung that song before I know Donna Remember, is God blesses those who honor his word. Who honor his word. That is exactly right. All right. So it's an expression of faith. The fourth thing about his prayer life. 
The prayer life of the believer must be consistent. You know, sometimes, have you ever said to yourself, you know, I just don't feel like praying now. When you say that or feel that way, that's the time you should pray the most. How often did Daniel pray? Three times a day. Many times it seems we pray only when it's convenient to us or when we have some kind of emotional experience, either bad or good, or some great pressing need arises. You know, we're to pray, we're instructed, without ceasing. That means constantly. That means habitually. Now, there's something else that we need to understand about Daniel's prayer life, and that's this. It provides him with the intimacy, solitude, and tranquility which he needs. It provides us with the intimacy, solitude, and tranquility that we need. We need that. If I was going to pick anyone in the scriptures who wouldn't need that, of anybody who wouldn't need that or would need it less than anybody else, it'd probably be Jesus Christ. I mean... He's been with the Father. He, he doesn't need those things, does he? Oh, but look. Matthew 14, 23. And after he had sent the crowds away. Now, wait a second. He sent the crowds away? Yes. Why? Because he needed to be alone. After he sent the crowds away, he went up, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. All by himself. Jesus needed to spend time in intimacy. He needed to spend time in solitude. And he needed to spend time in tranquility, experiencing tranquility. Jesus many times sought out alone time. Moses, he would do the same thing. Do you remember he put together his own prayer tent? And that tent, as they were going through the wilderness, was only dedicated to prayer. And you remember where he put it? You mean not just next to his existing tent? Not over next to the tabernacle. No, outside the camp where nobody else was. And he would go out there all by himself or he would take Joshua with him. Yes, Mark. Uh, Jerry and I were talking about uh, earlier and uh, Frank about sometimes not being able to sleep. And um, sometimes God, because we are busy, which is um, being under... Satan's yoke during the day. He keeps a spirit of busyness in us. But sometimes I think God wakes us during the night and say, okay, I need to talk to you. You're too busy for me during the day, so I'm going to wake you right now, and we're going to have a talk. And so that's why Jesus, he got all the noise out of the way so he could talk to the Father. You're exactly right. And I would think, based on Scripture, that if he wakes you up in the middle of the night, there's one of two things he wants, or both, time in prayer with him or try meditating on the Scriptures. If you read the Psalms, you find over and over, Daniel said, well, I wake up in the middle of the night in my bed, can't sleep, I meditate on God's Word. He's, he's in control of that. You know, there's another passage in Mark I thought we ought to look at in, in chapter 6. It says, and he said to them, that is, Jesus said to them, disciples, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they didn't have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Intimacy, solitude, tranquility. Now, next, sixth thing is proper prayer 
is in an act, is an act of humility before God. In the Old Testament, many of the people in the Old Testament, when they prayed, they were standing and they had their hand raised to God. Did Daniel do that in this instance? No. Daniel didn't pray that way. He prayed on his knees before God. Well, no one else could see him, yep, but God could see him. And being on his knees is a sign of dependency. He has to depend on God. He can't do anything by himself. And as Nebuchadnezzar came to learn, humility pleases God. Humility pleases God. And that's what he was exhibiting, dependency and humility before his God. Now, the next one I want you to see. It has to do with thanksgiving. Prayer is necessary for thanksgiving. Or put another way, thanksgiving is a, should always be a key part of prayer. There's a passage that I learned first in the King James and, and then in the New American Standard. It's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And it states this principle, be anxious for nothing, but in all, everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Everything, every prayer should include thanksgiving. You look at Daniel's prayer in, in 6.10. He says, and he was knee, kept, continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God that he had, as he had been doing previously. The scripture is clear that a man or woman who's filled with the Spirit has a thankful heart. You can find that in Ephesians 5.18 and 20. Now, some people say, now wait a second, Doug. When Daniel goes up there to pray and he leaves those windows open, he's basically saying, I'm the guy you should throw into the lion's den. He's thanking God that he's going into the lion's den? Yes. Well, does he know that God is going to save him? No, he doesn't know that. He does not know that. In the same way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not know that God would save them when they were thrown in the fiery furnace. That was up to God. Their sole focus was, I'm going to faithfully obey God, and he's responsible for what happens to me. He may, hey, I'm 83. He may want to take me home. Maybe not. Maybe he wants me to stay here. Maybe he has some things he wants me to do. But I am going to obey, and I thank you for this opportunity to obey. Yes, Mark? Continue healing. I can remember 25, 30 years ago, we were listening to a message by Charles Stanley, and he was talking about prayer and a message. And he was talking about the importance, if you can, to kneel when you pray. And he made the statement, I never forgot. He says, oh, but you say it's inconvenient. And I never forgot him. He stood out to the side of the pulpit, and he puts his arms out. And he says, how inconvenient was that? That just pierced my spirit. That was 30 years ago. You're right. So as we'll come to see, Daniel is going to, to thank him. Now, the next thing, the next principle from his prayer life is that prayer is a means for petitioning our Lord and Master. You see, the concept of making a petition is really a legal action. It's directed either towards a government agency or a government official or the judicial branch. If you came to me and asked me to file a lawsuit for you, 
I would prepare with something called plaintiff's original petition. And I would file that in the district court in Dallas County. So we need to come to understand that a petition is all about making a request of someone who can do something about it. You don't make a petition to someone who can't do anything about it, only someone who can do something about it. And so if you look in Philippians 4, 6, what does it say? Let your requests be made known unto God. That's what you need to be doing, letting your requests be made known unto God. If you were to look in Luke chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, what does it say? It says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. So as we're going to come to see, Daniel's prayers are always specific, applicable, and passionate. Now you say, wait a second. It didn't tell us what his prayer was here. How can you say that? Well, I'm also considering what he says in chapter 9. And in chapter 10, where you'll see, that's exactly the way his petitions were. It were specific, applicable, and passionate. You know what? If you're out there saying, I'm praying, God, you bless me. How are you going to know whether he did or not? I can remember a time in my life where I prayed, now, Lord, I don't know if you ever want me to get married again. But if you do, I'm praying that you will give me a godly woman. And now I can see the Lord answered that prayer specifically, and he blessed me. I, but if I just played, bless me, how would I know that's what he intended to do? I know specifically that that's what he did. And some of you who were praying with me at the time, you know that too. Also, a point we need to see is that prayer is all about the concept of supplication. Supplication. That's not a word we use very often, is it? In fact, how many of you are in here, if I said, can you give me an exact definition of supplication, would raise your hand and say, yes, I can. Not too many of us raised our hand. I probably wouldn't have before I studied this week either. But you see, verse 11 in Daniel chapter 6 ends this way, uh, with Daniel making petition and supplication to the Lord. So what does it mean? Well, if you looked at this word in Aramaic, it means to implore favor. It's Hanan. And Hanan means to implore favor. But maybe the English definition of supplication is maybe a little more defining for us. It is a sort of prayer, a request for help from a deity. The word carries a sense of awe and adoration with it, suggesting something tentative even servile on the part of the one who's making it, a respectful appeal to the higher power. So, that's what we've got here. Daniel makes this supplication. And they wait uh, several times. They don't strike immediately. So they can show a series of illegal actions on behalf of Daniel. And so we come to 11. Then these men came by agreement, and they found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. And then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days to be cast in the lion's den? And the king replied, the statement is true. 
according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. And they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the commissioners you appointed. No, it doesn't say that. Daniel is one of the exiles from Judah. That Jew pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed. Deeply distressed. What does that term mean? Well, it means to be seriously upset. And the concept here is you can be upset deeply because you have multiple reasons for being upset. Well, what are the multiple reasons he would have for being upset? He had no power to stop it. Well, he doesn't know that for certain yet, but he's going to learn. He's going to try to lawyer up and, and figure out a way. By the way, I have a suggestion for him. But he should have, uh, he, he knows that he's going to lose Daniel. Now, Daniel and he had become friends. He loved Daniel. Daniel was the guy who was going to make his government work and protect him. He needed Daniel. And he knows now, these guys lied to me. Because Daniel wasn't involved in this decision. You told me he was. And he wasn't. So he says, all right, guys, I'm going to think about this. And he set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting him to rescue him. Well, the officials accused Daniel before Darius. And Darius realized he's been tricked and even lied to. And that's a dangerous position to be in for those guys. He tries to figure a way out, but the legal maneuvering of the officials had been too good. Now, I'm going to suggest that if he came to the right lawyer, well, I tell you what we should, you can't revoke that, but let's have a new injunction. Anyone who accuses somebody in the king's government of violating this, they are thrown into the lion's den. Now, is there anyone here who wants to accuse Daniel? But that didn't, he didn't have good enough lawyers, unfortunately, which is, of course, something God wanted. Now, wait, don't take that the wrong way. But the king is going to see, as next week we'll see it, but the king concludes that it's now out of his hands, and now only God can do something. He has to see now there's nothing he can do. Even though he's the king of the kingdom, there's nothing he can do. It's out of his hands. Only God could take some action to change it. And that is exactly the position that the Lord God wants him in. Exactly the position. So let's look at a few things here before we finish that I want you to see. Daniel knows that it's better to keep your integrity and your testimony than any job or position you might have. Daniel understands that completely. Being consistently faithful to your God can earn you some powerful enemies, as Daniel has learned. Think about some of these cases we've talked about with the LGBT community has attacked people to destroy them who don't want to submit to their agenda and their positions. There are times that we'll find in our lives when the most important part of the believer's life is the part that only God sees. Only God sees. Some people think, well, if only God sees it, then I can fudge a little bit. No, that's the most important part. God judges by looking at your heart. Now, when we live non-compromising lives, we stand out. 
You need to be prepared for that. You will stand out if you choose that kind of life. Think about this a second, just from the easiest way to see it. In chapter 3, when everybody was kneeling, what was Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego doing? They were standing. In chapter 6, when everyone was standing, what was Daniel doing? He was kneeling. They were out of step with their times, but on a path that leads to true intimacy with God. Leads to unearthly protection. I want you to see two things here just a second. Would you describe your life with God, your relationship to one, as one of extreme intimacy? If not, what could you do to change that? Now, I think most of us are adult enough that we can use this example. If I wanted to increase my intimacy with my wife, what would I do? Basically, two things. Spend time with her, spend more time with her, and share with her what's really inside my heart. If you want to increase your intimacy with God, you need to spend time with Him and share with Him what's inside of your heart. When I share with Julie what's inside of my heart, how is she going to respond? She's going to share with me what's inside of her heart. If I share what's inside of my heart with God, what is He going to do? And now I've got true intimacy with my master. That should be something we want. Now the secondly, it's a lesson my son has taught me as I've seen it in his life and where he stands, this unearthly protection. A man of God in the will of God is immortal until his work on earth is done. A man of God in the will of God is immortal until his work is done. Now, that was the case for Daniel when he was 17. So, that was, his, that was the case for Daniel when he was 17 in chapter 2, when he finally told the king what was going on. That was the case for Daniel when he was 15 in chapter 1, when he said, I'm not going to eat the king's choice food. When he was 45 in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, and then with Belshazzar shortly thereafter, that was the way he acted. Now he's 83 in front of Darius the king. And he's still the same way. You can't kill me unless God wants to take me home. Now, in our nation, we've rarely had to face anything. It's coming. Now is the time to prepare your minds and your hearts for what's coming. Because it's coming. But who knows? Also, we need to realize someone else is coming. And may he come soon. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we can study this scripture of yours. I thank you for the time that we can be together. Father, we help us to understand that there's going to come a time when we're going to face the lion's den. Help us to ask the question to ourselves now before we get there. How will we handle it? What will we do? Will we compromise or not? I pray, Father, that you'll help me not to be a compromiser when the time comes. But instead, I will stand up for you, no matter what the cost. Pray the same thing for my sons and my wife. Now, Father, I pray that you'll bless our church while we're still able to have it. I thank you that churches aren't being burned in our country yet, or at least not extensively like they are in Canada. And so I pray, Father, that you will bring us back, if that's your will. Otherwise, come back and get us soon. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.